kind of crazy to expect them to be born and eat 100% all in one day. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete's Admin. Alice, I'm super excited for this week's episode. We are going to be doing a deep dive into total parenteral nutrition or TPN in the NICU. Yes. I think that before I started Pete's residency, I didn't realize that TPN was one of the most important things that we do in the NICU. Yeah, it turns out that neonates need to feed and grow and uh, nutrition super important. That's it. That, that <laughs> They're small. They need to get bigger. That's the major issue. F-E-N-G-I. Exactly. It's, I feel like one of the first big concepts that really gets drilled into us when we uh, rotate in the NICU. And uh, so today we're sitting down with Sarah Swaintech. Um, she is our registered dietitian in one of our uh, hospital's NICUs. She has been teaching every children's resident everything they know about TPN uh, from the start of their intern year. And so without further ado, here's Sarah. All right. We are here today with Sarah Swaintech. She's been our NICU dietitian for five years. She teaches four brand new pediatric interns everything they know about TPN once a month, every month. And we're here to talk about NICU TPN. Hi. Thank you for having me. So right from the basics, how would you describe TPN and why is it different from IV fluids? So TPN is just a combination of IV fluids and your macro and electrolytes. So your macronutrients are your carbohydrates, your dextrose, and your amino acids. So it's the simplest form of uh, what we need on our day-to-day lives that is broken down so it can be uh, taken in intravenously. When we talk about TPN, sometimes people talk about central TPN and peripheral TPN. What is the difference between the two and why is this such an important distinction? So TPN kind of just encompasses uh, parenteral nutrition in general. That is a very old school term that is used, TPN, for total parenteral nutrition. We found out that with PIV access, we are limited by how much nutrients we can give. So calling it total parenteral nutrition is not a good all-encompassing term. So what we've kind of gone towards is identifying the type of parenteral nutrition by its access point. So you have CPN, which is central parenteral nutrition, which is either umbilical line or pick access to a major artery, or uh, PPN, which is peripheral access, smaller vein, a little bit more restrictions there. That's the difference. CPN, you can put more nutrition in. PPN, you're limited with your osmolality. All right. So CPN is the central one and PPN is the peripheral one. Okay. So when we admit a premature infant day of life zero, we think about parenteral nutrition as almost an emergency, something that needs to happen immediately. Why is this so important? Can you explain this further? Absolutely. So the whole point of nutrition support in the NICU is basically to mimic what mom was doing in utero. So these babies are missing out on a huge chunk of their third trimester. And in that third trimester, they start laying down stores so they can survive outside the womb. When they're born early, they don't have these stores. So what they utilize gets depleted very fast. And then they're kind of surviving on empty. And it is such a big push because that can happen within 48 hours. So they'll use up everything they have 48 hours if we don't start that extra nutrition, they're not going to be able to thrive and survive. And I think right here, it's important to make the distinction between your preterm and your term infant. So how long can a term infant go before you start TPN? 
that's a great question. We usually give the term infants at least three days um, to kind of figure out themselves if they can um, feed and grow and they increase their volume of uh, intake, whether it's breast or bottle or mom's milk letdown happens and they can start seeing that nutrition component, then we'll let them kind of do it on their own. If they are not able to do that for whatever reason, whether it's cooling protocol, whether it's respiratory needs, or there's something inhibiting their oral intake, that's when we don't want to force the enteral too much because that expands their stomach very fast. So if you're forcing food into the stomach, you want to take it a little bit gently. In the meantime, you can supplement with your parenteral nutrition to make sure that you're, you're optimizing their nutrition status. So combined is is effective. Preterm, we kind of say, is less than 37 weeks. The babies who are at risk and need parental nutrition consideration the most are those babies who are 34 weeks and younger. And that's because the suck, swallow, breathe reflex happens between 32 and 34 weeks. They learn how to do that in the womb. If they're born at 34 weeks, they might have an idea of what they're doing, but they, they can't have the full skill and full endurance at the first days of life. When do we use starter TPN? Great question. So starter TPN is just having your dextrose fluids, adding that amino acid protein. So in that last trimester, the five stores that the babies develop are fat and protein, calcium and phosphorus, and iron. So those are the five stores that they're going to be missing and depleting within that 48 hours of birth. So those babies who come out of the womb early in that third trimester, their preterm, they're missing out on those five stores. So fat, protein, calcium, phosphorus, and iron. The starter TPN is something to help bridge us until we can write them a customized full parental nutrition order. So if the babies are born after one o'clock, which is our cutoff for pharmacy ordering, they can be written for starter TPN, which will bridge them until the next day where we can write them a customized version. It also helps us if we have a baby who all of a sudden we need to stop feeds for whatever reason, their abdominal growth increases. We're kind of doing a workup to kind of figure out what's going on with their sensitivity in, or intolerance. We can start them on the starter parental nutrition to kind of bridge them over. So that way we're not completely depleting their nutrition status. So that's sort of a bag that's already made in pharmacy and you can get any time of day. I remember conversations about it having a high protein load and having to be really careful about how much starter TPN a baby gets. Is this something that you think about when you start that order and you can't just order it like it's D10 water or order it like it's an IV fluid, right? That's a very good point. So every starter TPN bag has five grams of protein. That's not per kilogram. That's five grams of amino acid. So what happens is those bags are in 250 ml bags. So the the smaller the baby, the smaller infusion rate you're going to have to get to that total fluid goal, right? Because everything's per kilogram. Um, so they're only seeing a small percentage of that bag. Bigger babies, yes, their infusion rate is a little bit higher. They can tolerate a little bit more of that bag. But when it comes down to it, the percentage that they're getting from the starter parental nutrition bag is usually around two grams per kilogram of protein. So regardless of what size the baby is and how fast you infuse, if you stay within your total fluid goal, those babies should be safe with whatever they're getting. You mentioned our next our next topic, which is the total fluid goal. So that's what you really have to know before you figure out what the rest of the contents are. Could you walk us through how we set a total fluid goal? That's, I think, where a lot of uh, newbies struggle is trying to set that total fluid goal and figuring out how to titrate up or down. Um, so the key 
point in setting your total fluid goal is that the smaller the baby, the more insensible losses they have, um, whether that's because they're in an isolate and when they need temperature control, whether it's because they're under a lot of bilirubin lates because they have a high T-billy that you're trying to drive down. Those all influence how high you need to get this baby's total fluid goal. So rule of thumb, I usually say if the baby's less than a thousand grams, it's safe to start at a hundred mLs per kg per day. Each baby is different and they are going to tell you if they need more fluids or less fluids. If the baby is anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 grams, it's very safe to start between 80 to 100 mLs per kg per day. Any baby who's greater than 1,500 grams, safe to start at anywhere between 60 to 80 mLs per kg per day. So that's where you start. Now, the uh, titration up depends on a couple different things. So in the first week of life, we expect babies to lose from their birth weight. And that goes for term two, because we don't don't expect these babies to get 100% of their nutrition needs in that first day of life. That's kind of crazy to expect them to be born and eat 100% all in one day. So determining how fast or how much you increase your total fluid goal is going to be based a little bit on their weight. If they're gaining weight above their birth weight, they haven't diuresed yet and they're retaining water. That means you don't want to advance them that fast and push those kidneys to do something that they're not necessarily ready to do yet. So weight is something that we look at. If they have lost weight, we can definitely support them with more fluid. The second thing that you look at is their sodium trends. If their sodium's going up, that means they're drying out. You need to give them some more fluid. So you can go up on their total fluid goal a little bit faster. The last thing that you look at is their urine output. That is an indicator, again, whether their kidneys are working. If their urine output is adequate, which is usually above one ml per kg per hour, then you can kind of go up a little bit faster because their kidneys are starting to work. So those are the three things we really look at is their weight fluctuations, their sodium trends, and their diuresis, their urine output. Based on that, we recommend 10 to 20 mLs per kg per day advancement. Where we kind of max out our fluid is between 140 and 150. The little babies, again, more insensible losses, so they'll max out at 150. The bigger babies, you can max out at 140. If you go above that with your IV fluids, you do run the risk of fluid overloading these babies. So now we've established how to calculate a total fluid goal. How do we then also determine what the kilocal goal should be? That's a great question as well. Again, we don't expect these babies to get 100% of their needs in their first day of life. So we're going to slowly titrate up those calories. We're going to combine the carbohydrates as far as dextrose, your proteins as far as amino acids, and your fat in the form of lipids to create a calorie balance. So what we do is look for a goal between 90 to 115 calories per kilogram per day for each of these kiddos. And the lower end is okay if the baby has anything along the lines of cardiac surgery, uh, if they have increased respiratory needs, if they're struggling uh, with maintaining temperatures, they're burning those calories faster. So you might want to push them up to the higher end of that spectrum. The only way to kind of know if you're giving the baby the correct amount of calories is whether they're growing or not. So looking at their average weight gain over the course of a week. Let's move from calories to glucose. Can you explain what a GIR is? Like, how do we calculate it and why does it matter so much? 
So your GIR stands for glucose infusion rate. And that's really important because if we load these babies with too much glucose all at once, you're going to have spikes and you're going to have hyperglycemia. If you don't go fast enough, you're going to have the opposite effect and you're going to have hypoglycemia. So it's a fine balance. Research says that you should start basement level of four. So a glucose infusion rate of four is enough to continue to give the baby enough glucose for neurologic function and to ward off starvation mode. So if we start with a GIR four to five, that is great with the initiation. From there, we look to increase on a daily basis. You can max your GIR out I say comfortably at 12, you can go up as high as 14 if needed. Most of our babies, though, we don't see get to that point because we start the enteral part of the nutrition and combined enteral and parenteral, you want to equal 100%. So you slowly march up your GIR to a goal of anywhere between 9 and 12 to get full calorie needs. It's safe to go up with the little babies. When I say little, it's less than 1,000 grams. Go a little bit more gingerly between 0.5 and 1 step per day. If you have a bigger baby, you can go a little bit faster, one to two GIR per day. So we're starting around four and then we're going up by 0.5 to one in a very small baby or by one to two in sort of a more, a less extremely low birth weight baby. Okay. So now that we've kind of discussed what the GIR is, can we pick some easy numbers and walk through a sample calculation? Absolutely. The equation for your glucose infusion rate equals your dextrose times your rate of infusion. That whole thing is going to be divided by six, which is your constant for constant infusion. So it's your time interval. That whole thing is then going to be divided by your weight in kilograms. So I'm going to take the example of a 1.5 kilogram baby, day of life zero or one. So this is the initiation of your parental nutrition. We're going to set the total fluid goal for 80. That means there's 80 mils per kilogram per day that this baby needs fluid status-wise. And we're going to calculate that out to figure out what our GIR is going to be. So if you have a total fluid goal of 80, you're going to times that by your baby's weight, which is 1.5 kilograms. So 80 times 1.5 is 120 milliliters per day. If you divide that by 24, you get your rate of infusion, which is 5 mLs per hour. The calculation for your glucose infusion rate is your dextrose times your rate of infusion divided by six, which is your constant for time, divided by your baby's weight. So plugging in all the numbers we have, we know that we're going to use a dextrose of 10 because that's what all of our babies normally come out with in their first day of life, especially if they're 1.5 kilograms. So 10 times our infusion rate, which is five, divided by six, divided by our weight, which is 1.5, would give you a GIR of 5.6. So we're right in our target for where we want our baby to be at on day of life, zero to one. Thank you. Something we haven't addressed is the way that every single ML matters in these extremely low birth weight infants. Um, can you help us understand the framework for thinking about the total fluid goal in the setting of getting small drips of fluid elsewhere and why we need to be careful about it? So our babies that come in that are extremely low birth weight, um, if we can get an umbilical line, that is ideal because that allows us access without having a central access, without having to stick the baby too much. Um, that central access 
usually with the umbilical line, you have the option of three different ports. You have a UVC line that has two ports and a UAC line that has one port. So you have a potential three extra lines there. Um, with the total flu goal in mind, the total flu goal is not just specific to nutrition. It's specific to all fluids that this infant is going to get. So if you have a UAC line, you have to put some type of fluid into that line to keep it open, whether that's um, sodium acetate, quarter sodium acetate, dextrose, whatever you want to put through that, it has to be counted towards your total fluid goal. So if it is D10 running at 0.5, that is another 12 mLs of fluid for a 750-gram baby, that's going to be a, a substantial part of their total fluid goal. So it's important to remember not only is the total fluid goal for your nutrition, but it's for everything else that is going into that baby, whether it's UAC, UVC, extra PAL line, extra PIV with continuous fluid running through it. You have to account for all of those mil little milliliters um, because they do matter and impact that infant. When you think about initiating trophic feeds, do they count towards your total fluid goal? And also, what are trophic feeds? <laughs> so trophic feeds are also um, defined facility-specific. We say here anything less than 20 mLs per kg per day, which is less than one feed spread out throughout the day. If the baby's getting trophic feeds, we don't count it towards our total fluid goal because we expect the baby to have a little bit of trouble getting that motility started in the first couple days of life. So we might put one in, baby might spit one back out at us in the form of a residual. So it's a little bit of a um, gas, uh, it's gut priming to get that motility and that function going. And once we see that baby's going and, and, and um, we see that what goes in comes out in the form of stool, that is our kind of flag, okay moment, here we go, we can start advancing our, our, our start flag to advance our feeds. So once you get that go start flag to advance your feeds, once those feeds start advancing, that now becomes a fluid that gets counted towards your total fluid goal. So your feeds do start to count once they're above trophic volume. And then one other thing to point out, if your patient is getting dextrose containing fluids that are not purely what the dextrose is in the TPN, you want to include that in your calculation of your GIR. So just to summarize that, your total fluid goal is all of the fluids and non-trophic feeds going into a patient. So that's whatever's in your TPN, whatever's in your drips, your medications, your KVOs to keep lines open. And then if you're using something like D10 in a KVO at, for example, one or half an ml per hour, you're going to need to include that in your GIR calculation as well. Let's move on to our next nutritional building block, so protein. How much protein does a typical infant need? This is a great question because one of those stores that the babies don't have enough of when they come out of mom's womb is that protein. So that is why we have our starter parental nutritions have that amino acid in there to begin with um, so we can get that protein in as fast as we can. So as soon as we can put that in our parental nutrition, the better. We like to say that we would start parental nutrition anywhere between two to three grams per kilogram per day. I tend to go to the lower end. If the baby um, hasn't diuresed yet, we don't see any urine output. We don't have any labs. We don't know if those kidneys are functioning yet. So I like to be a little bit on the softer side. If we know the baby is urinating, we have some labs, we look at the creatinine, we know that the kidneys are functioning, we can go ahead and start at three grams per kilogram per day. So what is nitrogen accretion and why is that so important? 
to know about in these babies. This is why we start the babies off with uh, two grams to three grams per kilogram per day when that is already half of what their goal is. Their goal should be anywhere between four and 4.5. So we're giving them a pretty hefty dose right off the bat. And that's because we want to to give them enough protein for what they're losing. So nitrogen is is a um, component that's required for uh, protein synthesis, and it's involved in a lot of different functions in the body. The thing that happens is we excrete nitrogen in our urine, in our feces, and in um, other insensible losses that we can't control. So if the baby is losing protein in those um, avenues, they're not going to be able to build and maintain their own body weight. They're going to be pulling protein from other sources, which is going to be pulling nutrients from the body. So if we give them enough protein to make that um, accretion positive, that means we're giving them enough to cover their losses and enough to grow. So it's important to give that protein in order to provide that positive nitrogen balance. Let's move on to intralipids. How much lipid um, do we usually need to make sure an infant is getting? So lipids are tricky. We have two types of lipids out there right now. We have intralipid and SMOF lipid. Um, we're getting SMOF soon, so that will be a little bit of a different dosing. But right now we have intralipid, and we start our lipids off at um, anywhere from 0.5 to 1 gram per kilogram per day and slowly advance until we meet 3 grams per kilogram per day. And that's just uh, to meet about 30 to 40% of our calorie needs come from the lipid provision. And again, fat is one of those stores that those babies are missing in that last trimester and those first couple weeks of life. So let's make them fat and chubby and <laughs> let them go home and grow. <laughs> what do you think of as the reason is for starting so slow on the lipids and slowly titrating up? Is there a level that we need to trend? Is there something we need to be worried about while we slowly titrate up the lipids? So the one marker that we can utilize um, to kind of gauge whether or not we're providing enough lipid or too much um, is the triglyceride level. So if our triglyceride level, we use um, 200 as our threshold. So if it goes above 200, then we kind of back down on our lipid provision. If it's um, safely under 200, then we can continue to uh, increase and titrate up to our goal of three grams per kilogram per day. Back to what you had mentioned before, SMOF lipids and intralipids. What is the main difference that we need to know? So intralipids have been used in the United States for a long period of time. They are made up of soybean oil-based lipids. That it, It's great that we have them available and we can have that intravenously and that can continue to th- make us thrive and grow. The problem with the intralipid is that they're pro-inflammatory, so they're omega-6 fatty acids. So that's not the best situation for anybody in a critical care unit. Um, because of that, we have had researchers build our SMOF lipid. Um, so SMOF is, instead of just soybean, it's comprised of four different components. Um, so SMOF stands for each of them. S stands for soybean, M stands for MCT, um, O stands for olive oil, and F stands for fish oil. So it's a little bit of a healthier oil. It has more of the anti-inflammatory markers in it, uh, the omega-3 fatty acids, and that just gives the liver a little bit of a break and is more beneficial to especially newborn infants. Um, So that's the difference. The main difference is there's more omega-3 fatty acids and it's um, a little bit gentler on the liver. 
Speaking of the liver, can we talk more about TPN-induced cholestasis? Yes. Um, this is definitely seen in your um, infants that have been on parental nutrition for long term. Um, so parental-induced um, cholestasis is defined as when your direct billy is above 2 that's when you know that your liver, I like to think of it as it gets sludgy. It has a hard time clearing out what you're giving it. When that happens, um, there's a couple things we can do. And one of those things is backing down on our amount of uh, lipid provision to give that liver a little bit of a break so it can catch up in um, metabolizing what we've already sent to it to process. The other thing to keep in mind is that your trace minerals can also become stuck in the liver and that can create toxicity. So one of the things that we do is manage our micronutrients a little bit more closely when we have a cholestasis picture. We can take things out, put things back in. One of those things that is very important is your zinc. Zinc is an essential building block. A lot of different things utilize it. So we want to make sure we're giving the baby that. Maybe not so much the manganese. There's only so much you can do with the manganese. <laughs> okay. And this is why in our NICU, at least we We'll check these labs every Monday and, and just make sure that there is no cholestasis happening um, so that we could adjust if necessary. Absolutely. Let's take a minute to go over these nutritional labs and review what labs you're getting and how often you need to get them. So um, on a daily basis, we're going to do a, a BMP mag FOS because these are all electrolytes that we can tweak. On a weekly basis, we're going to do full nutrition labs. This is including a CBC with a differential and a reticulocyte percentage, a BMP MAGFOS, an ALKFOS, um, which will help us look at bone health, an AST and an ALT to ensure that the liver is tolerating the TPN, a neonatal bilirubin profile, which is really just a total and direct bilirubin. So we can see if the bilirubin is elevated from an inability for the infant to clear their bilirubin like a normal baby, or if there's TPN cholestasis preventing the direct bilirubin from being metabolized in the liver. Um, we're also going to get a GGT, which will help us look at whether or not there's cholestasis and a triglyceride level to see if they're tolerating the intralipids that we're giving them. So let's move on to electrolytes. Can you describe how we sort of think about and calculate the amount of different electrolytes that we want to put in this TPN and how this is different than just an IV fluid order? So electrolytes, I think, are the trickiest part about parental nutrition. I wish I could say if you give the baby one milliequivalent of, uh, per kilogram of sodium, it will bump them up five points. Every baby's different. The best way to determine whether or not they need electrolytes is look at their trends. In their first couple of days of life, they might not need a lot of support because they have those stores. But as the baby grows and gets older, especially if you aren't providing a lot of enteral nutrition, they're not getting other, those electrolytes from any other place. So once you see those um, lab levels starting to trend down, that's the baby telling us that they need some more support. So if you look and you see their sodium trending down, add one milliequivalent of sodium, see what it does. Um, if your sodium is way far down, say you're at 130, 132, you can add two to three milliequivalents per kilogram and then see how that affects your um, level by getting repeat labs the next day. And based on how far you jump, uh, your rate of rise, you can then kind of go down and tweak to make it more individualized. So you're looking at their electrolyte trend and, and sort of seeing how fast you can increase to get them at their goal. Um, so we're thinking about the electrolytes in terms of how many milliequivalents of each electrolyte. So sodium and potassium, for example, 
per kilogram per day we're giving the infant. And then we're sort of dividing that out into the IV fluids to get our final concentration of these things. Um, so how much in general um, for the first week of an infant's life and sort of for the subsequent weeks, what's a normal amount in milliequivalents per kilo per day of sodium and potassium to be providing? So on the first day of life, we really don't like to put electrolytes in our parenteral nutrition. And that is basically because when we get the baby's labs, we get 12-hour life and 24-hour life. Those 12-hour life, not always reliable because they could be more reflective of mom. Also might not be great because we don't know if that baby has diarrhea or not. So you don't know those fluid shifts, which eventually will um uh, influence your electrolytes. So in the first day of uh, life, we don't normally put any electrolytes in. After that, we look to put them in as baby needs them. In the first week, anywhere from two to four of sodium, um, one to two of potassium is normal. As we keep going forward, it might increase to three to five of sodium. Um, I really haven't seen babies need a whole lot more of potassium. Potassium is the scary electrolyte because it has those cardiac implications that we kind of really keep a close eye on our potassium provision, but overall the baby will be the one who dictates how much they need. So they might not get all the way up to that five of sodium. The smaller babies might need a little bit more help. So those babies who are the very low birth weight versus um, those who are just low birth weight, they can kind of manage a little bit more on their own and can increase their feeds a little bit faster. So they start getting more of those electrolytes from their enteral provision, not just the parenteral. So you see yourself sort of ultimately providing more milliequivalents per kilo per day of the necessary electrolytes in infants who aren't getting them from their feeds. Let's talk about the other things that we need to make sure are in the TPN and why. Starting with calcium and phosphorus, what's a normal amount of milliequivalents per kilo per day and why do we need to be careful about the ratio that we provide them in the TPN? Loaded question. Okay, so calcium and phosphorus are definitely two of those electrolytes that we need to give these babies. That's part of those stores that they aren't getting in the last trimester um, or in the first couple uh, weeks of life. Calcium and phosphorus are essential for bone growth and maturation. Without that, these babies won't thrive. Their bones will be at risk for developing rickets, too, if we don't provide all of the calcium and phosphorus. So... Um, Depending on the baby, again, the smaller the baby, the more help they need. Um, so always keep that in mind. It's safe to start at 100 milligrams per kilogram of your calcium. It could go up as high as four, five, six hundred, depending on the need. And for the phosphorus, because it's a bigger molecule, I'm going to go off a little bit. It's 0.67 is our maintenance, which um, needs one molecule carrier of either sodium or phosphorus. So that is our kind of baseline uh, phosphorus provision is 0.67. It can go up higher than that. I have not seen a baby need more than 2.5 milliequivalents of phosphorus. Um, they utilize it very well. <laughs> and um, as long as you're providing it, they'll be happy. Wonderful. So 0.67 of phos, 100 milligrams per kilo of calcium about. Good starting points. 
the last part of that question was why it's so important to watch the ratio. One of the things when you put calcium and phosphorus together is it could precipitate out in the bag, and that is definitely not something we want. So we have pharmacy helping us out and keeping a close eye on the ratio of how much calcium we can put in versus how much phosphorus we can put in based on our total bag volume. The more volume, the little bit more liberal you can be. The smaller the bag volume, the closer those restrictions are going to be on how much you can provide. What about our trace minerals? When do we add them in? When do we hold them? We kind of alluded to this earlier. So every baby will get not only the trace mineral, but a multivitamin. And that makes sure that they're just getting the whole gamut of nutrition support. I kind of say the same thing for adults. We can get most of what we need in our diet, but... I like to think of our diet as like a little bit of a Swiss cheese. There are holes and those multivitamins and trace minerals can fill those holes. So those babies need the multivitamin and the trace mineral to fill the holes that they aren't getting with their enteral nutrition. The multivitamin has everything but iron and the trace mineral has manganese, chromium, copper, and zinc. Those are the, the four components of the trace mineral and it's all dosed based on the baby's weight. When should we make sure that we hold these? Is there a clinical situation where you would need to be pulling out the multivitamin, the trace minerals from the TPN? So the multivitamin can stay in all the time, no problem. The trace mineral, we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, when your direct billy is elevated, that can get a little bit sludgy. It can, uh, those trace minerals can become toxic in the system. So that is when we would look to hold the trace mineral put back the zinc that we want along with anything else. The one other mineral that is not included in the trace mineral is selenium. Selenium has to be physically added into our parenteral nutrition if it is required. Selenium, we usually put in our parenteral nutrition if the baby is on uh, the IV nutrition without advancing enteral feeds to a substantial amount by 14 days of life. Selenium is important because it helps with the oxidation of free radicals and it helps with prevention of retinopathy of prematurity. It helps um, with concerns for chronic respiratory issues later in life. So it is essential. Babies do get it in their enteral nutrition, but if they're not getting in a lot of enteral nutrition, that's when we look to put it in the parenteral nutrition. So a full TPN baby for over two weeks and we start to think, where's the selenium? Are they getting it? So now we have our basically our nutritional building blocks, our dextrose, our lipids, our amino acids. How do we um, use those to kind of calculate caloric requirements? Great. So IV nutrition is a little bit different than um, nutrition we take by mouth. So when we break it down into these um, IV accessible nutrients, your dextrose is the macronutrient that has the biggest difference versus PO intake. Um, so with dextrose, you take the amount of grams that you get per day and you times that by 3.4 to get how many calories there are in a day. If you're talking um, NICU, divide your calories by your kilograms in order to get your calories of dextrose per kilogram. Your amino acids, you would take your grams of amino acids and times that by four to get your calories from protein. If you divide that by your kilograms, you get your calories from protein per kilogram. Your lipids, you would times by 10. So your lipid grams times that by 10 to get your calories per day from lipids. You divide that by your kilograms to get your calories per kilograms from your lipids. By combining all three of those, you should fall in that range between 90 to 115 calories per kilogram per day. 
with your parental nutrition, you want to, to work up on those goals we kind of defined. So your lipid goal is three, your protein goal is anywhere from four to 4.5. Once you get those to your goal, then you can utilize your dextrose to kind of manipulate. And that's where your flexibility comes in. And you can um, manipulate that in order to get your calorie goal. So you're starting everything at sort of a safe level from for the infant, a safe initial GIR and a safe initial level for the, in both the intralipids and the amino acids. Every day you'll increase your intralipids and the amino acids and your GIR by a set amount. And then once you max out at three per kilo per day of intralipids and four to 4.5 per kilo per day of amino acids, then you're really looking at slowly increasing the dextrose percentage. Say you've ordered your TPN, everything went well, and then you get a call around 6 p.m. and the nurse tells you that there's a problem with the TPN bag, we're not able to hang it tonight. How do we then convert that to a fluid cocktail? That's And it's a tough question to answer. I think we should preface this by saying we won't be able to really go through the nitty gritty, but what are the general concepts to keep in mind? General concepts from that is remembering what your GIR is. So the first and foremost is knowing your GIR because we can provide whatever amount of dextrose you need in order to make that cocktail or that new bag similar, if not the same, as what was being hung. So GIR is important. That's number one. Second, we have the starter parental nutrition. So we can provide that two grams per kilogram estimated um amount for those babies with that. So we're providing that amino acid. Um, the lipids are a little bit more difficult. Um, we can have the babies get by on no lipids until the next day. Um, the lipids are the hardest part to kind of reconfigure. Um, as far as all of those electrolytes in your parental nutrition, that also becomes a challenge. If the baby's taking PO, we can kind of give it to them PO. Or if they can't take anything by mouth, um, we can ask pharmacy with help to put those electrolytes in in the bag. And those are on case-by-case -case basis. Um, definitely for the babies less than 1,000 grams, definitely for the micropremies less than 750, they're a little bit more willing to work with us just because it is a little bit tedious when we're talking electrolytes and putting them in the bag and all the math and the calculations. Um, compounding in-house is not ideal. We outsource to CAPS Pharmacy for all of our compounding and they have a whole system and protocols and procedures to do it in a safe way. So we can do our best here, um, but the starter parental nutrition is really the cocktail that you're going to utilize in order to get through to the next day. I want to talk more about other ways that other calls we might get from the pharmacy that there's a problem with the TPN. Um, can you speak about being able to fit things in the TPN and what osmolarity is too high and sort of how we end up in that place and how we can fix it? Um, Great point, because we do get a lot of calls from pharmacy. Um, so pharmacy helps us out a lot with our osmolarity. So osmolarity for these uh, neonates and for um, children, adults, um, teenagers, we uh, research has shown that an osmolarity of 900 milliosmoles is kind of the threshold for PIV or uh, PPN. So if you have an osmolarity of over 900 milliosmoles, it puts you at a higher risk for IV infiltrate. And that's definitely not something we want these babies to experience. They're hard enough sticks as it is. We don't want to blow veins. Um, so the pharmacy helps at us keep our bag less than 900 milliosmoles. And that is only for PIV access. When you have central access, you have no limit in your osmolarity. But when it gets to a, a very small bag volume, you might have a hard time 
fitting everything you want in there um, just because of space and it just competes and it, it the bag volume needs to be a little bit bigger. Um, so it doesn't necessarily go towards the osmolarity um, spectrum. That is more reserved for the PIV access. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of walk you guys through what it would be like to start a newborn infant, um, preemie infant on parental nutrition. So say we're going to go back to the baby we used in our example for our glucose infusion rate, our GIR. So this baby is 1,500 uh, grams. Um, our total flu goal for the day was set at 80. Um, they're going to get a little bit of enteral nutrition, but we're not going to count that towards our um, caloric goals. We've already set our dextrose percentage at 10 to give us our GIR of 5.6. If this baby has no labs and we don't know urine output, we're going to start that baby at 2 grams per kilogram of um, uh, pro protein, uh, amino acids, and we're going to start them off at 1 gram per kilogram of lipids. Though it's all very safe, this baby is a little bit on the bigger side um, and can handle those loads. Based on the labs um, the next day and whether the baby's diuresing, we can then start slowly titrating up to our goal. Okay. Another nutrient that I don't think we've discussed yet is iron. How do we think about including iron? Going back to the, the multivitamin in the parental nutrition, the only thing that it doesn't include is iron because iron is a very hard thing to put into an IV solution. Um, it's not very compatible with a lot of the things that are in the parental nutrition. And to v provide IV iron is... Um, a little scary. It can have anaphylactic response, so it's not the most ideal way of getting iron into the baby. Um, we know that iron is that last store that we haven't talked about yet as far as those five stores that the babies are short when they come out that third trimester early. Um, so the one thing that we can do for them is watch their hematocrit levels. Um, once they're tolerating enough um, enteral nutrition, where it's not, because iron on an empty stomach is not great. I don't know if you guys have ever had a multivitamin in the morning. It is. It's awful. So we don't want to stress their gut out anymore. So once they get enough food in their system, then we can start providing um, a little bit of iron in the form of ferrous sulfate. We can give anywhere from 2 milligrams per kilogram today all the way up to 6 milligrams per kilogram per day for those um, very low infant, uh, very low birth weight infants. Um, we cannot provide it in the parental nutrition, unfortunately, so the only way we can get it in is via mouth. Um, we can give that iron, and the other thing with checking those hematocrits is anemia of prematurity is pretty prevalent in the NICU, so is packed red blood cell transfusion. So if the baby does get to a point where we can't bring them back with just supplementation, we can give the um, packed red blood cells to kind of boost their system back up. Um, the thing to remember about that is once you do that, all that hard work that they put into creating those packed red blood cells kind of gets reset back to zero. So once you have a baby who has had a transfusion, the likelihood of them needing another transfusion in their NICU stay is a little bit higher. If you have a baby who borderline getting by, try to give them that supplementation so that they can thrive on their own and they can continue to produce their own red blood cells. And then once we give that transfusion, my understanding is that it is a large sort of bolus of iron into the infant as well. And then we hold the iron for a specific preset amount of time after the transfusion. So that is a um, good point. The blood that these babies are getting, we don't know where it's coming from. It could come from you and I. So they're getting a big dose of iron when they're getting that new blood. We don't want to over iron them because 
can't take it out. There's no way to extract that iron. So we do hold the ferrous sulfate for, and this is facility specific, so you might find different things at different facilities, but we do two weeks after the transfusion, then we can start adding the iron back. So it gives the baby a little bit of time to adjust to that higher iron dose. Then we can add that iron back to support them. And this is, as you start to see these babies outpatient or as we start to think about towards discharge, um, this is why it's recommended by the AAP for all ex-premature infants to stay on polyvisol with iron for a set amount of time as opposed to being only on vitamin D. Correct, exactly. So um, our term infants will go home on just vitamin D. Term infants are born with that extra little bit of iron in the system. They have that store built up. So they can usually go about six months before they need that iron supplementation. And I don't know if you guys know what the first food, and this is a little bit on old school track, but what's the first food introduced to babies when they get get solids? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, your baby cereals, because it's supplemented, right? That's where yeah. they can get a little extra. Iron, fortified cereals. These um, preterm infants don't have the same um, aging process as a term infant would because we think corrected gestational age um, for a long time. And they're thriving on their own for a lot longer than um, those term infants. So they need that iron a little bit faster and sooner. So that's why we send them home on the, vi uh, the polyvisol with iron, which has both vitamin D and iron in it to make sure that they get all those things that they need. And is your dosing for that generally half an ml? Um, is there a specific time when you think of going from half an ml to one ml? That's a really good question too. Um, so polyvisol with iron, a half cc for any baby who's on formula because the other half is in the formula. If they're on plain breast milk, mom's milk is fantastic, but it does have a little bit more holes because formulas are made to be self-sufficient. Mom's milk does need a little bit of help. Um, so... With those babies who are going home on exclusive breastfeeding or mostly mom's milk, we recommend a full CC. Um, keeping in mind that the polyvisol is made for babies who are 2,500 grams. Um, so if they're not quite 2,500 grams yet, you can go half CC and then graduate them to a full CC once they've hit that threshold. So one CC in anybody over 2,500 grams who's also exclusively breastfed. And otherwise, you're going to need to think about it a little bit more. So just want to hit you with our closing question one time. What is your favorite thing about being the dietitian in a NICU? I love the teaching aspect. So I love when you guys come and I get to um, kind of go through all of this knowledge and impart that on you. So that way you guys can carry that through into your practices and it just makes you guys stronger practitioners. Um, I also love that nutrition is uniquely the first thing that's talked about in the NICU in any situation because nutrition is so important and that's why they're still here is that we're giving them the stuff and that they need to grow. Um, any other ICU situation, nutrition is usually last. So that's why I love it. <laughs> we can't thank you enough for sitting down with us today. Wow. I think that I would have paid money to listen to that before my uh, first NICU rotation intern year. Yeah, I, I truly wish I had had that information. I think uh, Sarah would have appreciated yeah, it. Too. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I especially like how, you know, we were able to walk through some examples because I feel like that is the key to making some of these concepts stick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to do it for a couple babies and then it slowly becomes second nature, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, feel free to uh, screenshot some of our Instagram stories. We're going to put up some uh, more of the hard numbers that we referenced mm-hmm. in today's podcast. Yeah, we know you're not um, going to remember them right after hearing them, but we hope that it helps. Exactly. And then if you want a deeper dive into neonatology, we recommend uh, the NICU grad podcast. It's one of our colleagues, Nina Newt-Jube Desai. She's a third-year NICU fellow, and it's excellent. It's so full of excellent information. And again, I feel like uh, if you want to roll into your NICU rotation looking like you are somewhat prepared, (laughs) unlike I did. (laughs) Know a single thing about neonatology is my advice to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, definitely check out Nina's podcast. It's awesome. Um, and as always, please, uh, let us know if you have any thoughts, questions, Mm -hmm. anything at all. Concerns. Yeah. (laughs) at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We're also on Instagram. We are, we're literally waiting. We're so available. We're too available. Question Embarrassingly. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, no, never. (laughs) Um, all right. We will, uh, we will see you next time. All right. See you next time.